In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to continue talking about the theology of baptism. In particular, we'll look at why do we need baptism, what does it do for us, and what's the link between baptism and discipleship. Enjoy. Welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast, where we explore the sources of the Catholic faith, including the scriptures, the documents of the Church, the teachings of the Second Vatican Council, and the lives and witness of the saints. St. John Paul II often said, Duke in Altum, set out into deep waters. And our goal here at the podcast is to help you do just that. We don't want to merely provide you with information. Instead, we seek to help you achieve a true transformation and to respond to the Lord's call in your life to live out the universal call to holiness. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I am the director of faith formation here at the St. Philip Institute. Um, this is going to be uh, a second part of sort of our theology of baptism. So we're still in a year of baptism here in the Diocese of Tyler. Um, we did some episodes talking about biblical dimensions of baptism, and now we're in sort of a two-part conversation about a theology of baptism. Um, and this is the second part of those. So if you've missed all those other ones, go follow us uh, on, on YouTube and go back and see them. They were probably okay um, and maybe possibly even good. Um, but I, th- I think that they can be helpful if you're sincerely looking for some more, you know, formation on baptism. So um, we've talked a little bit about what a sacrament is, the idea that baptism is one of the sacraments of initiation, talked about the names for the sacrament of baptism. So I want to start now thinking about why we have baptism and why do we need it and and how much, how much really do we need baptism? Um, You probably don't have to be an expert to know that, you know, the number of baptisms, the number of confirmations, communions, weddings, all that stuff, all those numbers are going down. So it's it's less popular than it used to be to baptize a child, to get them to make sure that they receive their confirmation and their first communion and all that. Um, we we have to say baptism actually is, is necessary, um, but why is that and where do we where do we get that idea from? So uh, you actually see this really clearly spelled out in the catechism. Um, it's paragraph 1257. Actually, I'm going to read the whole paragraph because I think it does a, a good job of explaining why we need baptism and and the fact, the raw fact, that we do need it. So this is 1257 from the Catechism. The Lord himself affirms that baptism is necessary for salvation. He also commands his disciples to proclaim the gospel to all nations and to baptize them. Baptism is necessary for salvation, for those to whom the gospel has been proclaimed and who have had the possibility of asking for this sacrament. Um, so note that there's a distinction there um, being made that uh, baptism is needed. If the gospel has been proclaimed, then you, you've got to respond to it by asking for baptism. And if you've had the possibility of asking for baptism, then you, you need to do that. But the church will say this here, the next sentence, the church does not know of any other means, sorry, the church does not know of any means other than baptism that assures entry into eternal beatitude. This is why she takes care not to neglect the mission she has received from the Lord to see that all who can be baptized 
are reborn of water and the Spirit. And then there's this note, God has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism, but he himself is not bound by his sacraments. So essentially what the, what the church is sort of laying out here in this paragraph, again, that's 1257, is that in terms of ordinary means to enter the church and to be able to receive eternal life, it's baptism. It's water baptism. That is the way that you should receive salvation, that you should enter into the church. It's not that God couldn't do something else or that there might not be some other possibilities, but in terms of the ordinary or the normal way, baptism is the normal way. And it references the uh, dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus about being reborn, which I think we talked about in our um, New Testament episode, a uh, couple, couple episodes back. Um, now, to say baptism is necessary, part of the reason that we need to, to, to think about that is it's necessary. Okay, why? It's not just because the church says it, just because it's in the catechism. That's not the only reason you can give. We need baptism because we need to be freed from sin and death. Jesus, the name of Jesus, means Savior, and he is the Savior because we have something we need to be saved from, and that is we need to be saved from sin and death. We are born into original sin, and baptism erases the original sin in us and restores us to, um, you know, and not just restores us, makes us a son or a daughter of God, gives us the life of the Trinity within us, we need to be saved from something. Even a cute little baby, you know, needs baptism. Jesus is the Savior, and he's the Savior for all of us. We are all in need of salvation, and baptism is the ordinary means by which we receive that salvation. So baptism then uh, is necessary because it saves us from sin and from death. Now, another related question is, you know, what is baptism f for? Like, why, why, why do we have it? Uh, what does it do for us? Might be another way to ask the question. Um, and I, I, again, will turn to the catechism. Um, I'm not just reading the catechism to you, and there's a lot more in the catechism here. I'm sort of trying to focus on a couple of key points. But in paragraph 1265, we have this note um, that baptism not only purifies from all sins, but it also makes the neophyte a new creature an adopted son of God who has become a partaker of the divine nature, a member of Christ and a co-heir with him and a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is really important that what we believe about baptism is that it truly does make you new. It is a recreation. You become a new creature. You are an adopted son of God. You become a partaker of the divine nature. In other words, baptism is not merely a symbolic cleansing. It's not just a symbol. It's not just a ritual. Is there a ritual? Does it have symbolic elements? Yes. But remember, it is because it's a sacrament, an efficacious ritual, right? Efficacious signs. We truly are renewed even in the interior. Baptism renews us. Uh, this is from Christi Fidelis Leici. It's a document of John Paul II, I think it's written after the synod in, oh, I forget what year, 89 maybe. Um, he had this to say about baptism. He says, this is paragraph 11 from Christi Fidelis Leici. Rising from the waters of the baptismal font, every Christian hears again the voice that was once heard on the banks of the Jordan River. 
You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Um, So baptism makes us a divine son or daughter, a son of God, a daughter of God. And it gives us justification. Justification enables us to believe in God, to have faith in God, to hope in him, and to love him. It gives us the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And it gives us the power to truly live and act under the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and that it allows us to grow in goodness through the moral virtues. Baptism, in other words, really radically changes us. It gives us these gifts that we cannot otherwise acquire. You cannot have faith, hope, and love without grace. Baptism gives us that grace, gives us those virtues, access to them, and then makes it easier for us to respond to the Holy Spirit, makes it easier for us to grow through the moral virtues. And ultimately, what baptism can do if we receive it, cooperate with us, cooperate with that grace, continue growing in holiness. It's a given thing. It's a gift that we can then develop and grow into, right? In the, in the way that, you know, language is, is, is something you receive, but you have to grow into too. Like any kid, any baby could potentially speak Chinese or, you know, Japanese or Spanish, French, Italian, German, whatever. You, you, they have that capacity for it, but then it, it takes time to, to, to grow and to develop and nurture, and eventually it's something that they can freely do on their own. Baptism, in, in a way, is a gift like that to us that is ultimately designed to get us not just free from sin itself, like wiping off the stain of original sin, but it's ultimately to, to set us free from sin itself, not from a sin. Right, so that means the saints who have most fully received the gift of baptism, they are dangerously close, not dangerously, it's good, they are incredibly close to not even sinning because they've responded to the grace of their baptism. Don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying saints don't sin, but to be a saint is to be so far along the path of holiness that sin doesn't even really have a draw to you. Not that you're not sinning. You don't even really want to sin. That's a gift that starts in baptism. All the other sacraments are, are in play, and they help us to, to grow deeper into that, but it's, it's found, the foundation of that is in baptism. And why? Because baptism infuses us with the life of the Trinity. So we really do truly become holy. It purifies us. Baptism leaves an indelible mark on us. It changes us forever. Those two things are true, and it's true that it does not automatically make us a saint. But we can't get very far along that route to sainthood, to being truly holy without the gift of baptism. So it's, it's a really, really important thing. And what it does for us is not just get the penalty of original sin thrown out, we're starting again. We're a new creature, and we have the divine life in us. So we're called then to develop that, to continue to grow in that. Um, so baptism, in addition to you know wiping out the stain of original sin, it remakes us. It makes us a son or daughter of God. It unites us to the church, and then it calls us through justification into sanctification. So baptism justifies us. 
but the other sacraments, especially the other sacraments of initiation, are critical to helping us on that journey toward sanctification. All right, I want to talk a little bit now in, uh, or a little bit about some of the different symbols in the rite of baptism and and what is the meaning that they carry. Um, The water, man, I think if you you watched our Old Testament episode on baptism in the Old Testament, like you see, you saw that there's a lot wrapped up in the notion of water, but the water of baptism in the liturgy of baptism is meant to symbolize a bunch of stuff all at once, okay? One of those ideas is the idea of death. That's what that immersion, that submersion in water, it has this symbolic element of going into a tomb. So death is one of the things that water symbolizes in a baptism. Another is purification. Remember, one of the titles for baptism is is the washing, right? The washing of, of water. So it's death and it's purifying, but it also, water symbolizes life. In the Bible, especially in creation, life comes out of the water, so water is life-giving. It's life-giving and it's also death-dealing at the same time, um, which is, yeah, sometimes maybe it's, it's a little tricky for us to think about. How can it do all these things at the same time? It's because water is very, very rich. And I mean, you can think even natural terms, right? You need water to survive. If you've been in this this East Texas drought, you know, all of the grass has died and everything. We need water, right? But water can also be destructive and, and, and dangerous, even naturally. I mean, you look at like a hurricane or floods. Ice in Texas is, you know, very, very dangerous, that sort of thing. So the symbol of water in baptism is supposed to bring about this notion of death, this notion of life, and purification all happening at the same time. And that can happen through immersion, through sprinkling, um, either way. Um, and what, I guess one thing you could say is the submersion, the immersion in, into water kind of makes the death purification or the death motive motif stand out more. Um, whereas if you're sprinkling, maybe the death part doesn't come across as well. But this notion of like sort of, sort of a purification might maybe come off a little bit better. Uh, but those three things are wrapped up with the water. Oil. In uh, baptism, you have the oil of catechumens, uh, the oil of catechumens and the oil of uh, chrismation, uh, or chrism oil, rather. Um, And in the Bible, oil is used um, for a couple of different purposes. One function of oil was to seal someone with authority or to sort of confer authority on someone else, like as a a mediator. Um, So if you were a king or, you know, a, a military person or whatever, you can tell I know a lot about the military by calling them military persons. Uh, but if you if you had some power and authority and you wanted to send someone to deliver a message, to go and do something officially on your behalf, you could seal them with oil. So that was one one way of doing, one way of using oil, one of its functions. Um, but also it was used as uh, healing, as a way of healing to help people recover um, and to prepare for battle. And all of these different ideas are, are at work in baptism. So in baptism, you're being you know, recreated in the image and likeness of God, become a son or daughter of, of, of God. And so you're being sent out from the baptism with a sort of authority, you know, that, that you are one of God's children. You're, you are now one of his, right? And so you have a little bit of his his uh, image, you, you're created in his image and likeness, but you've been renewed in that image. 
And so you are going out with a sort of authority on, on God's behalf. You're sort of put into mission, and we'll talk a little bit about this later. Uh, but it's also sort of to prepare you for the battle um, and to, to heal you from the, the, the wounds of original sin. So all of those wrapped up with oil. Um, the baptism candle is one of my favorite parts of the liturgy of baptism, and that's because of its connection to the, the Easter vigil. Um, so at a baptism, you have a baptismal candle, but you can't just light it with a match or a lighter. You have to take that baptismal candle and touch it to the Easter or Paschal candle at your parish. That Paschal candle is lit um, at every baptism, but it, it is lit once a year at the Easter Vigil as you get a new candle every year. And it's this super solemn thing. We'll have to link, I'll link a video to uh, one of our previous episodes where we talked a little bit about the Easter Vigil so you can understand what it's, what it's about. But there's so much going on with that Paschal candle at the Easter Vigil that we really can't, I can't describe all of it. But that Paschal candle comes out in the baptism. It is lit. And then from the Paschal candle, we get the baptism candle, reach up, light it from the Paschal candle, and we say, okay, receive the light of Christ, right? And the idea in a baptism is just like what happens at the Easter Vigil, that all of the baptized receive a candle that is lit from the Paschal candle. And so, so what happens then is the Paschal candle, which is one little flame, is multiplied and shared by everybody in the in the community without it ever being diminished and and then everybody's light shines brightly so as someone who's been baptized a little child's just been baptized or an adult you're receiving that light from the paschal candle with the idea that like you're a light of Christ in the world and you have your own light that comes from him but is still your own that you will go out then and bear as a witness to others, right? So when a child is baptized, they receive this lighted candle, and the minister says, receive the light of Christ. Um, a, an adult who's baptized at the Easter Vigil receives the same sort of candle, and, and they receive the light of Christ, and then they go become the light of Christ. So I know probably a lot of people, you see a baptism candle for a baby, and you just like, oh, it's so cute. And it is cute, but it's also wrapped up with the Paschal Liturgy of uh, the Triduum. Uh, the, the Easter Vigil um, is where all of this really comes from. Okay, now, uh, the white garment, one of the symbols of baptism that's really, I always think, is fun to think about, um, even though I think I might, I might upset some people. Um, with my comments here. Now, that's because in the rite of baptism, you have this instruction given to the parents. Listen to this. So you have the name of the child, whatever. Robert, you have become a new creation and have clothed yourself in Christ. Listen to this. <clears throat> Listen to this line. See, in this white garment, the outward sign of your Christian dignity. With your family and friends to help you by word and example, bring that dignity unstained into the everlasting light of heaven. So you have been clothed with Christ in the baptism. So you're supposed to understand that the white garments you have now is an outward sign of your Christian dignity, and then you're encouraged, challenged to keep that garment, which is your soul, unstained 
into the everlasting life of heaven. Why might I upset people when I talk about this? Because you're supposed to receive this white garment after you've been baptized. So you can wear whatever it is you're going to wear when you're baptized, and then after you've been baptized, now that you have been clothed with Christ through the sacrament of baptism, we will symbolically clothe you with this white garment. Um, So you see this most clearly, I think, with adults who typically are not going to wear a white garment the whole day. They will be baptized in whatever they're wearing, and then typically uh, a parish will say, okay, here's a, an altar server's alb, put it on now that you've been baptized, and we'll, talk, we'll, we'll give you this little teaching about you've been clothed with a new—you've become a new creation, you've been clothed with Christ, keep this garment unstained. A lot of times that symbolism gets lost with infant baptisms because parents—and I've done this myself, okay—bring <laughs> the baby— already wearing a white garment. And that's just as true. I mean, it's a symbol, right? Though the words are still true, but it's more powerful when the white garment is given after the child has been baptized that you can see, oh, now they're the new creation. Now they have the new clothing. They're being clothed with Christ. Keep that unstained. Um, so this is, this is uh, I, it's a powerful um, moment in the ritual, but that visual sometimes gets lost um, in the way that, you know, infant baptisms typically take place. Um, So at the same time, though, even if the kid's already wearing the white, it gives us a good visual image that's challenging. Like, see how bright and white and sparkly that baptism gown is? Keep it that way. Even if you're just talking about the physical garment, that would be challenging enough. I don't know how to keep something bright and white. Like, I don't understand how you can possibly own something and it not slowly turn, you know, duller and duller and duller. I just don't understand it as, as a human being. But when you're talking about your soul, man, that's even more challenging. And that draws out the connection to the other sacraments of initiation, the sacraments of healing, confession, and the importance of having the support of family, having the support of friends. Because our souls are our own, like that's true, but we're also, we're part of a community. We're part of a parish, we're part of a church, and all of us can be, in one way or another, helpful to someone else to help them keep their garment, their soul clean, right? There's, so there's a there's an ecclesial communal dimension to this um, as well. Um, so, all right, that's enough about, I think, symbols um, from the baptism. I'm sure we could say more. Let's transition here to this last part now. I want to talk about the link between baptism and discipleship. And really, for for us at the, at the, at the diocese, in the Diocese of Tyler, um, the, the Institute staff, this whole year of baptism from, from the first moment we heard it was going to happen and throughout so many of our meetings and discussions that we've had, uh, this theme of the link between baptism and discipleship has been one of the things that has just come up again and again and again so clearly for us. And it's a challenge for us. So many people are baptized, but yet not very many of them necessarily recognize that by your baptism, you are called to discipleship, you're called to mission. And not only do a lot of Catholics not even realize that, a lot of Catholics, more of them, don't 
don't do it either. So maybe some of us understand it, but we're not doing a great job at doing it. Uh, but a lot of us don't even, don't even, you know, we don't do it and we don't know it. Um, so I think one of the great challenges for, for, for Catholics um, is to talk about the fact that our baptism is not just something that happened in the past, right? It's something that's supposed to be part of our life story, and it's supposed to orient us in, in the rest of our lives. So the Church says baptism makes us a new creation, sets us on a new journey, a new path, the way of holiness. And especially since Vatican II, I think there has been a more clear emphasis on the dignity of baptism, like how big of a deal it is, and the fact that baptism is linked to evangelization, it's linked to mission, and it's linked to discipleship. So I want to read uh, one quote from St. John Paul II, and then maybe look at another quote. We'll see if we have time. This is from John Paul II, Christi Fidelis Leici. It's from uh, the Synod, or after the Synod on the Laity in 1988. Um, he wrote this uh, exhortation about the Laity. And he makes this powerful connection between baptism and our missionary calling. So here's what he said. The vocation to holiness must be recognized and lived by the lay faithful, first of all, as an undeniable and demanding obligation, and as a shining example of the infinite love of the uh, love of the Father that has regenerated them in His own life of holiness. Such a vocation then ought to be called an essential and inseparable element of the new life of baptism, and therefore an element which determines their dignity. At the same time, the vocation to holiness is intimately connected to mission and to the responsibility entrusted to the lay faithful in the church and in the world. So what St. John Paul II here is saying is that our calling to show others the love of the Father is linked to the new life that we receive in baptism. So if we've been baptized, whether that was 40 years ago, 60 years ago, or two months ago, we're called to be a witness to the new life the Father has generated in us through this sacrament, and we're called to recognize that baptism makes us missionary, and that we have a responsibility. Each of us, just through our baptism, have a responsibility to the church and to the world. So this is one of the themes of the Second Vatican Council, which talked about the role of the laity in, in the modern world, uh, that the laity are called out to evangelize the public sphere, the places where the church isn't going to be in its institutional identity very well. The workplace, family life, schools, politics, all these sorts of places, lay people have a special job. Um, there. So there's this link between baptism and evangelization, baptism uh, and uh, missionary discipleship. I want to close looking um, briefly at another quote. This is from Evangelii Gaudium, Pope Francis. This is paragraph 121. I think it'll be a good end to this discussion. Of course, all of us are called to mature in our work as evangelizers. We want to have better training, a deepening of love, and a clearer witness to the gospel. In this sense, we ought to let others be constantly evangelizing us. But this does not mean that we should postpone the evangelizing mission. 
Rather, each of us should find ways to communicate Jesus wherever we are. All of us are called to offer others an explicit witness to the saving love of the Lord, who despite our imperfections offers us his closeness, his word, and his strength, and gives meaning to our lives. In your heart you know that it is not the same to live without him. What you have come to realize, what has helped you to live and given you hope, is what you also need to communicate to others. Our falling short of perfection should be no excuse. On the contrary, mission is a constant stimulus not to remain mired in mediocrity, but to continue growing. The witness of faith that each Christian is called to offer leads us to say with St. Paul, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So this is the, the, the vision that the church has of baptism and evangelization, baptism and mission. Um, if you are baptized, you are called to missionary evangelical proclamation. You are called to discipleship and called to holiness, and you're given significant graces to help you do that. Um, so this is, uh, I think, a good way to wrap up a discussion on baptism. Of course, plenty more. If you want to, to read more about baptism, check out the Catechism of the Catholic Church, starting in paragraph 1213. Plenty of stuff there. Also a lot of other things. And if you look in the show notes, um, you'll see some other documents and resources that I, that I would recommend. So thanks for sticking around. Hope you enjoyed this. God bless.